Hello, and welcome to episode number 371 of the Armin Show podcast in person. We are live. It is cool to be here. I'm at Occidental College. Subscribe if you haven't. YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be. The show continues on. Here, today, we have a special episode at Occidental with the author of 2017's Science Blind, and also with much research, we have Professor Andrew Stolman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on and speak with you. There is connection here. I see in the back of your book, Michael Shermer in the middle, and I recently spoke with Michael Shermer. All is connected, and I saw you were talk with him at one point. That is quite cool. Now, before we get into that and all, what has led you to where you are currently in Occidental College, the path to where you are through Princeton and Harvard to now? Sure. Um, I was a psychology major at Princeton, um, and all students at Princeton have to do a senior thesis. And I knew I wanted to do something related to why people believe the things they believe. Um, I went to high school in Virginia, and there were a fair number of people in my high school who were fundamentalist Christians. And um, some of them would leave class during biology uh, because they didn't want to learn about evolution. And I always found that fascinating because I accepted evolution and I was curious as to why they didn't. Um, and so that... And, and then there's other experiences that I had growing up, you know, living in a religiously diverse community um, where I was on the, the more atheistic scientific side of things. So when I had this opportunity to do a senior thesis, I wanted to study how people, uh, why people disagree about the way the world is, but to, to actually get something that's like empirically tractable for a one year project, I ended up looking at intuitive theories of evolution. Um, how it is that people understand evolution in comparison to what evolution actually is. Um, I took my lead from this literature on intuitive theories of physics and how people are very confused about motion and force and so forth. And um, I was curious if that held in the domain of evolution. So um, that just doing the research got me very excited about doing that kind of research. So I applied to graduate school um, to study cognitive development, specifically conceptual development. Um, and I went to Harvard and worked with Susan Carey, who's an expert in this area, um, also an expert on intuitive theories. And um, in graduate school, I continued studying intuitive theories, um, but I also branched out to looking at children's understanding of physical possibility. Um, so I would now uh, summarize my research program as having two parts, intuition and imagination. And so that Science Blind was sort of a culmination of a lot of work on intuitive theories. And then I, I've just completed a book on imagination. Um, no, I'll need to come up with a new research topic <laughs> so I have more books to write. <laughs> That's super cool. I like when you pointed out the thing that caused you to pick that topic. It reminded me of another professor and how she went with what was available at the time, the thing to look at. Okay, I'll go with that. And then we're directed in that direction. It's, not, it's sort of you combined with the moment makes the topic that you choose. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cool feature. Now, have you heard of me search? Me search, me search. <laughs> I have not heard of me search. Yeah, like all research, you can tie it back to something oh. in the per the person's own life. <laughs> I was thinking it was like a website for a second. No. I'll go to research. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Right. That's true. Is that what? Ah, huh, that's now I'm going to think of that forever. Whenever I see research, I'm like, <laughs> how is this exactly tied to the? I guess I always think of it that way, actually, uh -huh. in the first place. So that's neat. Me search. 
I'm going to remember that. It's, I think it happens more often in psychology than, say, physics, because, you know, what about a black hole corresponds to a person's <laughs> personal identity? But in psychology, you can usually piece together the connections. <laughs> right. That's funny. This black hole is connected with the feeling that I had at this age. Yeah. I felt empty <laughs> or vacuous. That's pretty good. That's true. Some of the other sciences, they would not have such a link to like organic metals or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now, intuition and imagination are both key topics. Intuition comes up much here, obviously, imagination for your next material. You have looked at intuition a lot, and you have looked also at development and how it connects to that. Why this whole category and why children and development is that the most interesting period of brain activity? Right. Um, yeah, I when I applied to graduate school, um, my intention was to study cognitive psychology, not necessarily developmental psychology. Um, but I discovered that people doing the best work on conceptual representations, like how we think about the world, um, specifically how we think about like particular aspects of the world where there's true content in our thought. Um, the people doing the best work on that topic were developmental psychologists. Um, and that's because um, to really understand the end state, like a mature understanding of some aspect of the world, uh, you have to have a sense of where that mature understanding came from. What are the initial concepts and how do those concepts change over time and what kinds of experience um, or instruction uh, are part of the path from the beginning to the end state. Uh, and uh, yeah, the people in the field of conceptual development um, typically look at infants or young children, um, but conceptual development could take place in adulthood, um, like the topic of evolution is something that you don't uh, you don't encounter very much firsthand data that would lead you to even uh, expect that evolution occurs, let alone understand how it works. Right. So you need instruction, and in the U.S., uh, instruction is often instruction on evolution is delayed to high school, even college. So you know the relevant age group to study if you're interested in how we develop an understanding of evolution would be adults. Um, but most of the field of cognitive development would, would be centered around uh, children and infants. When you study infants, the question is, what kinds of concepts are we born with? Um, or what kinds of concepts emerge early in life, given sort of innate foundations in terms of how we see um, and the kinds of inferences we seem to be wired to make. Uh, and that, and that, that's all ends up being relevant even to adult cognition because um, there is some starting point, some foundation of early concepts that gets elaborated through firsthand experience interacting with the world, um, through uh, what other people in your culture tell you, um, through experiments that you conduct, not formal experiments, but just your interventions in a situation and what outcomes you observe. Um, and all of those things uh, uh, shape ultimately the theories we hold. Mm. So one uh, fr uh, framework for understanding uh, concepts and knowledge is uh, a theory perspective where we don't just have this general knowledge that covers all topics, but rather our knowledge is partitioned into discrete uh, 
types of knowledge or theories. Um, and they get characterized as theories because this knowledge does many of the same things that scientific theories do. Um, it helps us explain events in the past, predict future events, um, intervene in the moment to try to bring about events. Um, so it has the same flavor as theories, even though the content might be different. So the theories we construct on our own from our innate concepts and our everyday experience, um, they will do an adequate job of capturing real life phenomena, but they are almost never the same theories that we now uh, view as being scientifically correct because the, the scientific theories have undergone decades, if not centuries of systematic, intense research. Um, and so, but everybody starts out with intuitive theories, um, these early self-constructed theories. Um, and then in the history of science, they get changed and revised to create scientific theories. And now with science education, um, uh, the, the real, the task of the science educator is to get kids to go from their intuitive theories to their scientific theories very quickly. They don't have to discover the scientific theories. Those are already discovered by scientists you know, of the past, but we can very quickly, uh, restructure and reorganize our understanding by taking advantage of the products of scientific inquiry to update these self-constructed theories to something more accurate. Hmm. One thing you mentioned there, prediction. Uh, is, is the human brain a prediction machine? Is the thing we keep <laughs> on that? Oh, sure. Um, Are we just good at mapping out exactly how things will go by probabilities and whatnot? Yeah, that's a, a new uh, influential framework for thinking about the brain and for cognition. Intuitive theories fall into that category because... Uh, uh, we construct them in order to make predictions, um, specific predictions, like predictions about motion or heat or growth or gravity. Um, so like there's particular theories that, that provide you with particular kinds of predictions. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a, if, if a theory didn't furnish predictions, we wouldn't create it or, or hold on to it. It wouldn't be helpful. That's true. The ones you just mentioned, some of them are chapters in the book. And it made me think of when I was seeing them. This one's an interesting one. I was thinking about what do all people develop all our general abilities and understanding at some point? Are there any that people are walking around with something that is not developed? Kind of a challenge question, but mm -hmm. are there any pieces that are missing in individuals um, through their development? They got some of the things like theory of mind and whatnot, but they're missing this component. Does anything come to mind in that category? Yeah. So the science mind is organized into 12 chapters. Six are about uh, theories of the physical world and six are about theories of the biological world. And the motivation for creating those various theories is some aspect of daily life, like motion. Um, you, you just can't escape motion, right? It's all around us. So... It would be good to understand it uh, so that you can predict how quickly something is moving uh, towards you or away from you, um, make predictions about setting objects in motion, where they're going to go and so forth. Um, and so it's sort of inescapable that you need some knowledge to help you grapple with motion and forces. 
um, or um, life and death. Um, that's another f- set of phenomena that just um, confront us inevitably. You're going to encounter, like, well, you're alive as a person, but you're also going to encounter death. Um, and you encounter activities on a daily basis in yourself or in other people that uh, sustain life, like eating and sleeping and so forth. And so, again, you you need to make sense of those activities in order to predict how they'll unfold if you're observing someone else or also um, engage in them yourself. Um, so there's some phenomena where just because of its inescapable nature, we end up having to create some kind of theory to understand it. But there's other phenomena that uh, you have to be shown or um, you have to learn about. So one of the chapters in that book is about evolution. It's like that was my original interest in intuitive theories. But just looking out at the biological world, it's not at all obvious that that the current species evolved from previous species. Um, so that it's not inevitable that you would create an intuitive theory of evolution. It might be um, encouraged by the fact that evolution is just a part of our, our culture. So we use the word um, and you will encounter evolutionary phenomena um, in books, on television, in museums. Um, you know, like what's this thing that's a dinosaur that doesn't seem to exist anymore, but they have fossils. So there are phenomena that lead you in that direction, but it's quite plausible that you never really grapple with it. Um, as opposed to something like motion, which is just inescapable. Even infants are going to develop initial expectations about motion. Right. Gravity shows up real quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Something is dropping. Can you tell us a bit about some of the ages at which items develop or understanding comes across? And how do you look at it? Do you look at it as one, two, three, four, five, six, or order can change? How do you look at that? Mm. Um, usually there's a pretty systematic progression within a domain, within a theory as to the, what are the early set of concepts you understand, the early set of principles that then provide a foundation for learning later concepts. Um, but that's within a domain. The domains themselves are pretty separate. So you could have a really sophisticated understanding of growth, but a very immature understanding of heat. Um, and even though there might be like sort of a systematic development within the domain, um, it's not that that development in one domain will force development in another or require development in another. And sometimes they're interlinked. So like it's hard to understand heat from a scientific point of view if you don't also understand matter um, because you need to understand that matter is made of smaller particles and the particles move and it's their collective motion that is in fact heat. Um as opposed to what we intuitively think of heat as something like a substance that flows in and out of objects. Um, so to make progress in the domain of heat, you also have to make progress in the domain of matter. So they are linked. But there's pl- plenty of examples where things come apart. And so, um, yeah, you can have people who have children even who have very sophisticated understandings in some domains and very shallow understandings in other domains. Um, same, I guess, is true for adults. Uh, you'd hope that by the time you graduate high school, um, you would have at least been introduced to the scientific theories and all the major domains. Um, but just being introduced to them doesn't mean you necessarily learn them. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 
but it, it's a it's a radical departure from how cognitive development used to be studied. So the founder of the field is Jean Piaget, and he had this stage theory where um, children went through different stages of thinking and reasoning. And they were all ordered and they characterized all aspects of cognition. So um, there was like the the pre-operational uh, stage of thought where you were um, thinking without the operational means like an operational logic. So there wasn't actually any kind of systematic logic to your thought. And eventually that way of thinking gets replaced with a logic of thought. And now you're at the operational stage. And prior to pre-operational, there's a, a concrete stage. I, I actually always forget these stages because uh, they, they're just not part of cognitive development anymore. But you know, historically, they were important. Um, kind of like computer programming. Kind of yeah. Like compiler and then right. assembler and then next. Uh, I mean, they motivated a lot of research. And um, people really took the stages to heart. And they thought like, oh, well, a four-year-old is at the pre-operational stage. So we should expect to see hallmarks of pre-operational thinking in all, in everything they do when it comes to like mathematical cognition or social cognition um and you can sort of force it you can see what they're doing and try to force it into that rubric of pre-operational thought but if you look deeper it looks every domain has its own trajectory of development and and kids can make progress in one domain without making progress in another um just depending on their experiences, um, the kinds of instruction they've received. And then um, more importantly, though, there th that stage theory view, um, it just doesn't hold water. Like there, there isn't anything in the child's mind or brain that truly corresponds to like pre-operational thought. Um, it's, a, it's a label we, we can give up. That category doesn't help us explain any important data now. Hmm. Like a construct. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind for children is how are they researched or studied as far as their intuition? Can you give a couple of examples of how they are tested for if they figured out something or were not there at that point? Sure. Um, most studies are behavioral in nature. So at the end of the day, researchers are um, looking for some kind of behavior. It could be verbal behavior. It could be like an explanation or a justification or it could be a physical behavior. Um, and you you put children in some kind of scenario that would elicit the relevant behavior. Um, so when it comes to like learning how children understand motion, um, you could involve them in tasks where they're actually like setting objects in motion. They're trying to catch objects. Or you could set up hypothetical scenarios where you ask them to predict motion. Um, one of the most common things to do to uh, to chart people's theories of motion is to ask them to draw the trajectory of an object where you say, like, here's a ball that's about to roll off a table. Show me where it's going to go. Draw the path it will take. Um, or here's a ball being dropped from a plane. Can you draw the path it will take as it falls? Um, in other domains, drawing doesn't make as much sense. Um, you know, like at the domain of heat, you can't really draw heat per se. Um, and so in that case, it would be different kinds of tasks where you make predictions about um, whether something will get hotter or colder, uh, how something will feel to the touch. Um, 
um, like what, you know, what, what you could do to prevent something from, from losing heat and so forth. Uh, yeah, it really, it just depends on the domain to construct the right kind of scenario. Um, and a lot of the tasks that psychologists use end up looking something similar to what educators use in the classroom, right? The, the kinds of materials either an educator might use to test their students' understanding or materials that would use to instruct them um, uh, uh, in developing a new uh, concept or theory. Um, but you, yeah, you, you've got to get the, the content right, um, there aren't any sort of general purpose tasks that you can administer because that was sort of the, the hope of the earlier stage view of development that you could, you know, give kids maybe a couple of tasks and diagnose them as a concrete thinker or a pre-operational thinker. And that would explain everything. But now we know like, you know, that if you want to understand how a child thinks, you need a task that taps specifically into one area of thought. That makes sense. It's not so much that regimented in a way. Mm -hmm. Now, how different is the level of general intuition that a, let's say, five-year-old has from a 25 or 50-year-old as far as uh, sense of the world? Is it highly limited or is it um, on the same wavelength and just building some experience? Is there a huge differentiation between mm. those? Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's two kinds of developmental changes. Um, there's continuous changes where you have a theory that's basically right in its structure, its core, and you enrich the theory, um, with new experiences, uh, new educational opportunities. Um, and then there's the development that's discontinuous in nature because the theory that you're starting with is qualitatively different than the theory that you need to end up with. Um, and, when there's a discontinuity in development, um, learning requires some kind of restructuring or reorganization of the original theory. And that's, that's the hard kind of learning. And it, it's, sort of, it's rare in development. Most learning is just enriching uh, prior theories. It, it's continuous in nature. Um, in order to do a kind of radical revision or reconstruction of your knowledge, um, you usually have to be led through it by an expert. It usually doesn't happen on your own. Um, and so you need, I mean, that's that's sort of what makes learning science hard, that the, because the students will bring to the science classroom intuitive theories of the world that are all qualitatively different from a scientist's theory of that same domain. Um, and so... Uh, the, the 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 qualitative differences come out in um, usually like individual concepts, how a child or a novice understands those concepts relative to an expert. So to give you a specific example, a f force for a child is something that's intrinsic to an object. It's a property of an object. Objects that are um, at rest have no force and an object in, a mo in motion has a force. You've imparted a force to the object when you push it into motion or throw it. And then the force resides within the object and slowly fades away. And once the force is gone, then the object will fall or come to rest. And so from a physicist's point of view, that's just a nonsensical view of force. In fact, that word doesn't even map onto what the, a physicist means by force. 
um, as an interaction between objects uh, and uh, uh, right as something that causes acceleration or deceleration as opposed to something that just causes motion. That's the naive view that a force is necessary for motion as opposed to a force is something that creates changes in motion. So an, a good physics teacher will be able to identify these um, uh, critical differences between an intuitive and a scientific view and create the right kinds of activities or learning uh, experiences that will highlight the difference between, say, their the student's understanding of force and the scientist's understanding of force. Um, but of course, like in order to learn the scientist's view of force, uh, somehow you have to not only recognize that your view is wrong or incomplete, but somehow model the scientist's view and, and create something from nothing. So it's, there's a, you know, a lot of work that goes into good science instruction that can involve modeling activities, um, directed analogies, uh, thought experiments. Um, so one, one thought experiment that I talk about in the book that it has been shown to work really well at getting kids to understand force from a scientific point of view is um, an activity focused on the normal force. Just the idea that this book here has a force acting on it. Oh, well, it doesn't anymore. <laughs> Wait, the, oh. table, the table is acting on the book. It's it's uh, There's an upward force acting on the book from the table. And if that force didn't exist, then the, uh, the book should fall to the floor under the force of gravity. So they're counteracting each other. But of course, a student uh, with their naive understanding of force would say there's no forces acting on the book because it's not moving. It's not moving right now. Right. And so, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, to conceptualize the normal force, it's, it's really quite difficult. So what, um, uh, John Clement, a science education researcher, uh, uh, did in a curriculum he created was to try to analogize the book on the table example to a case where the normal force can actually be perceived. So like putting your hand on a spring and pushing down on the spring, you can feel the spring pushing up on your hand. Um, and so that's a case where the upward force is perceptible. And then you try to move from there to another situation where the upward force a little is a little less perceptible, like um, a flexible like foam, uh, a, a piece of foam, and you push down on the foam and then it pushes up on your hand. And then you move from there to maybe like um, a flexible piece of plastic uh, that you might push down and there's even less give um, until eventually you make your way back to the book example. And you say, see, in all these cases, even in the book's case, there's this upward pushing force. Um, so that, that's a way of trying to create a structure that is initially absent in the child's mind. Um, you've got to make connections with other things that they they know, uh, but those connections are really hard to achieve, and it takes a lot of ingenuity on the part of science education, science educators, but also it takes a lot of testing on the part of science education researchers to determine whether these curricula are actually effective. Because um, one thing that science education or, or physics educators in particular like to do is give students problem sets with the idea that if you solve um, 
a whole bunch of problems where you have to apply an abstract physical equation to a concrete situation, you'll just come to learn the physics behind the abstract equations. And it turns out you don't. You learn the process of mapping equations to situations and the process of solving for variables using those equations, but you never change your qualitative understanding of physics. So you might be able to solve a problem where the normal force is involved in the mathematics, but you still would deny that there is a normal force acting on the book. How does one bridge the gap between that? Because that's an important one. The test may be of problems that one can see and solve through, but then linking it back to reality, it's like back to what you said, like walking them there slowly through examples that bridge the gap. Yeah. Well, it's, it, I mean, it's not, it's a slow and difficult process because um, when you come to the science classroom with an intuitive theory, it's not as if the intuitive theory is just its own little thing that needs to be corrected. The, you've used your intuitive theory for you know, 10, 15 years of your life to understand and explain all of these phenomena around you. So in addition to recognizing that the intuitive theory has flaws and there's this other scientific theory um, that is more accurate, it, it maps onto the world more precisely, um, then you have to use the scientific theory to reinterpret this whole database of experience that you've built up and interpreted in terms of the previous intuitive theory. So that's, that's why, um, you know, a single lesson is unlikely to uh, create real change in a student's mind. Even if every student in the class understands the point of the lesson and comes away feeling good about that lesson, um, to then take that lesson and apply it to, uh, to all these other areas that where the the principle at the heart of the lesson touches on that's hard you and you don't do it spontaneously and unconsciously you have to like actually work at it and try to recode this database of experience in terms of this new scientific theory how much of learning has to be come up from within like that you would feel or think that you figured it out versus your coming to an acceptance of, okay, this is the way that was informed. Does it have to be on the, like you have to feel like you came up with it as well on your side? Yeah, I, I think it's, that's actually pretty controversial. Uh, There's some science educators who feel that uh, the best education is, is always a hands-on uh, the best activity is always a hands-on activity and you need to involve multiple senses um, to really get buy-in that just instructing people verbally on what the correct concepts and the correct principles are won't work. Um, but actually, there's a lot of research suggesting that when you involve students in hands-on activities, um, they just don't end up learning the lessons they're supposed to learn because they just default to their intuitive theories to understand what's happening in the moment, as they should because they develop their intuitive theories to make sense of everyday interactions. Um, so you really do need this like um, verbal lecture-based instruction or textbook-based instruction at some point to help you develop this new framework. But it's, it, there is, a, there is a, a role for all these other kinds of experiences and activities, which is connecting up this new set of principles to reality. Because um, you could, if you just learn the principles on their own, chances are 
um, you'll apply them in the class on the test, <laughs> but then you won't apply them when you leave the classroom and go back to your daily life. So there's lots of challenges in science education. So in addition to just learning the principles, another challenge that oftentimes is not met is then connecting those principles up with the everyday phenomena that uh, the principles can explain for you. I've always noticed that whenever I was able to learn something, it came from that feeling that I have to go and figure it out. Okay, this is the thing. You have to like have a want or like a push factor towards it. Like you're pushing against a friction of figuring it out and you have to be with it versus, yeah, if it's, let's say, an assignment, there's a disconnect. Okay, I'll figure it out for this, but it's like in a box of its own that's separate from reality. So, okay, I'll figure out this box of its own but it's not as inspiring in a way. Mm -hmm. There's like a gap there. Yeah, some sort of gap. Now, one thing I wanted to pull back to is, I did not mention, but you are the director of the Thinking Lab, mm -hmm. which is at this institution, Occidental. Can you tell us about the Thinking Lab and what you bring to it and what you like to cover in it? Sure. Um I, yeah, I've dubbed my lab the Thinking Lab because uh, we study various aspects of uh, concepts and conceptual representations from intuitive theories to imagination, and thinking seems to cover that broad range of topics. Um, and uh, at Occidental, I don't have any graduate students. Occidental is a liberal arts college. Um, so the lab basically is comprised of me and my undergraduate research assistants. Um, and I usually have undergraduates who are running developmental studies as well as studies with adults. So studies with adults, you typically do through um, like computer-based tasks, and oftentimes you can administer them to adults uh, over the internet. Um, but studies with children involve a lot more work. <laughs> You've got to find the kids and create tasks that keep them engaged um, and produce data that are meaningful for testing your hypotheses. So there's a lot of work in the construction of the tasks as well as the, the recruitment of the children and so forth. So my uh, undergrads actually do all their developmental testing at local parks. We go to the park, we look for children in the age range that we're testing, and then we approach the parents and ask the parents if their child would uh, like to do a 15-minute study that's based on the iPad. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially the work of the Thinking Lab is uh, mostly uh, developing materials and then testing them with kids. That's the, the, mo the hardest part of our job. Is it more the case that when you work with adults, they have a feeling like they're part of something and they're trying to contribute versus with kids, they're like, all right, but they don't know what they're part of. They're just kind of taking, giving it a try. Is that fair? Yeah, it's true. I mean, adults have like meta thoughts about the study. Um, so you have to be careful not to include what's known as demand characteristics in your study. So that is um, questions where everyone can kind of guess what the right answer should be, right? Um, like, is democracy good or bad, right? <laughs> and like, so there's a demand characteristic that you should say good, although these days that might not be the case. Um, but uh, with kids, they're sort of they're not as, they're not really thinking about the study 
or their role as a participant. Um, older kids, maybe, but younger kids probably are just answering as they see fit. Right. Um, and I mean, it, it's good and it's bad. I mean, because uh, if, if you're an adult participating in a study, um, you are aware that you're contributing data to a study. And so usually you're trying to answer honestly and thoroughly. At least that's the instruction you're given. Um, and many adults do cooperate. But for kids, um, you know, they're, you've got them as, as long as you can like maintain their attention. <laughs> but they're not necessarily interested in providing clean, usable data. <laughs> right. Short attention span or shorter in a way. One thing that comes to mind is that back to, I want to bring it back to uh, intuition. Mm -hmm. And uh, from even the title here, why our intuitive theories about the world are so often wrong. We had mentioned about uh, children and younger individuals and their development of how they process things or intuition. But for adults, what are some ways that our intuition is off? And how does that connect with science and not taking in science that may not be actual science. Mm -hmm. um, so intuitive theories uh, get uh, updated at different points in development, depending on uh, where you are in your schooling. Um, and so there are some intuitive theories that um, uh, are, are changed and revised in elementary school. Other intuitive theories we hold on to um, in as high schoolers or even college students, I mean, um, for a domain like evolution or mechanics or um, maybe some some aspects of astronomy, uh, people don't tend to actually receive a, enough education or adequate education to revise their intuitive theories. So they they hold on to their intuitive theories their whole life. Um, but interestingly, even in cases where you have revised your intuitive theories as a child, it looks like what you do is you acquire a scientific theory in addition to your intuitive theory, but you don't erase the intuitive theory. You hold on to both theories. So there's plenty of evidence now that scientifically literate adults, even professional scientists, still have their whole repertoire of intuitive theories that they had developed as children. Um, and in various contexts or given various prompts, um, you can tap into those intuitive theories. So. Uh, to give you a concrete example, um, an intuitive theory that we develop as children to understand life and the living uh, biological processes um, is a theory that equates motion with life. Things are alive if they move on their own, and things that don't move are not alive. So on this view of life, it leads kids to classify animals as alive, which is correct. Um, it leads them to classify inanimate objects like a desk or a book as not alive, which is correct, but then they make some misclassifications. So they'll misclassify plants as not alive because they don't seem to be moving. Um, and they'll classify some things that are moving in their environment, like the sun and the clouds as alive. Um, so eventually in the early elementary school years, uh, uh, through instruction and experience, they come to realize that life is actually a description of something that has a body that takes in energy to sustain um, the internal workings of the body. And they develop um, a theory of life that in the literature is termed vitalism, um, where there's uh, 
vital processes that occur within the body that are fueled by energy. Um, so this is a, a, a conceptual change. It's the technical word we use for transitioning from an intuitive theory to a scientific theory. Uh, it takes a lot of work and effort and so forth. And um, it's a pretty reliable conceptual change. So most adults that you will encounter uh, understand life as referring to metabolism like a, life is a metabolic state not just a state of motion mm -hmm. nevertheless when you take a scientifically literate adult and set them down at a computer and you show them words on a screen and you ask them to classify what that word as as something that's alive or not alive um, and they have to do so as quickly as possible um, they will make more errors for plants than they will for animals occasionally classifying plants as not alive right. and they'll also make more errors for moving um, non-living objects like the sun and the clouds than um, non-moving non-living objects like a book or a, a desk. So occasionally classifying the sun as alive. Um, and then also, um, even when they get, get it right, they say like, oh yes, a tulip is alive. Um, the sun is not alive. It takes them a little longer to make those judgments for the entities that sort of um, uh, are... Uh, blur the boundaries between an intuitive and a scientific theory or, or the, yeah, the, the ones that are originally misclassified on your intuitive theory. Um, so this is evidence that those early ideas have not been erased. Um, you still hold this misconception to some degree that plants are not alive and then the sun and the clouds are alive, even though explicitly, you know, that's wrong. Um, we see in people's behaviors that they hold these residual intuitions. Dang. Would you say that it's fair to say that an individual, it's almost like paying a tax forever if a, an item was not learned exactly a way that matches reality and maybe your response will always be a little slower because you have to process the incorrect one, then remember it wasn't correct and then go to the correct one for most of your existence? What was the original thing you said? Is, about is it the... sort of like a tax that you would have to pay forever? Like a oh, a tax. Processing uh, tax. Mm -hmm. Uh. Possibly. I mean, it seems that um, these theories are very context dependent. Um, and so uh, it's possible that you can reason very well, very accurately and very quickly um, within the confines of a scientific theory if you're in a scientific context. So professional scientists within their daily life probably have no trouble <laughs> making scientific inferences. Uh, they don't have to like pause and uh, suppress an intuitive misconception before they go on to make a scientific inference. It's just that when you move to a new context, when you move to daily life, the, the context in which your intuitive theories were first created, those contexts might trigger intuitive ideas that then need to be suppressed um, in order for you to reason scientifically mm -hmm. i think about that because i i get the idea that many individuals around the planet they have certain items that they didn't learn let's say fittingly the first time around and then almost every time it comes up in the future they go back to that original oh, okay it's not that and then they go to the next which is the actual the accurate way that they learned later on right yeah hmm. yeah there's uh there's different ways that you can frame a task um, that will either sort of lead you down the right path or lead you down the wrong path, uh, just in terms of uh, contextual cues and, uh, um, and and what you think your your task is. Um, so, like, 
uh, one thing that I'm often asked about when I talk about intuitive theories is that um, in the research that I present on intuitive theories, I'm associating them with an inaccurate view of the world. Um, but then the question is, well, what about expert intuition? What about scientific intuition? Is that an oxymoron or is that a real thing? And it is a real thing, right? Like um, scientists do have accurate intuitions that are intuitions consistent with the correct scientific theory. Um, it's just that uh, they, uh, they also maintain another theory that we don't have to call it an intuitive theory. We could just call it an earlier theory or a child a childhood theory um, that will lead to a different set of uh, inferences. Um, it's just that inferences don't happen without context in a vacuum. There's always a context. There's always a task. And the affordances of those tasks and those contexts will lead some ideas to crop up more quickly um, or more reliably than other ideas. One thing I always think of is the prefrontal cortex and how it requires a lot of energy would you say that the using the prefrontal cortex or certain higher end parts of our brain is required to build new knowledge or intuitions like it requires a lot of effort or glucose or sugar to push them through mm -hmm. yeah the prefrontal cortex um has definitely been implicated in the um the conflict or the coordination between early and later theories. So um, there have been studies where uh, people have put physicists into fMRI machines and shown them um, different physical situations that they have to classify as correct or incorrect. Um, so you might see like uh, a circuit um, that's configured correctly or incorrectly for an attached light bulb to be turned on. To, um, uh, or you might see objects falling and you might see like the correct situation of a big object and a small object falling at the same rate or the incorrect situation of the big object falling faster than the small object because um, you're assuming there's no air resistance or whatever in the simulation. And physicists, you know, ace these tasks. They know what the right answer is, what's the correct circuit configuration, what's the correct way that objects fall. But when you look at what's going on in their brains, the prefrontal cortex is involved um, in situations where uh, it might trigger an intuitive misconception. So the case of like the large ball falling faster than the small ball. Intuitively, we look at that and say, yeah, that's right, because heavy objects fall faster than light objects. Um, and so physicists aren't don't ultimately pass a judgment consistent with the misconception, as many lay adults would. <laughs> um, they, they know the right answer, but it looks like they still somewhere in their brain slash mind have to inhibit that intuitive misconception. So you see activity in various uh, areas of the brain that are um, implicated in inhibition and um, error monitoring. Mm. Speaking of... Uh, per, uh brain qualities or personality qualities are there any features of an individual that help them to come to intuitions more smoothly or more efficiently are there any features that match up with that the, the, like uh, personality traits they come or, to like correct intuitions yes uh yeah uh there's 
I mean, in my own work, something we've looked at is cognitive reflection, which is the uh, predisposition to reflect on your own thinking, uh, to sort of uh, think before you speak <laughs> or make a judgment. Um, and the way that cognitive reflection is assessed is with brain teasers. Um, so here's one. What do cows drink? So cows are associated with milk so that the first thing that pops into your mind might be milk. But with some reflection, you realize, well, cows produce milk. They don't drink it. They drink water. Um, so the ability to answer that question correctly, um, as well as other brain teasers like it, that actually predicts um, uh, understanding science. It predicts the ability to learn science, um, at least in children. Um, it predicts uh, how well you can coordinate uh, intuitive and scientific responses to a task in, in like that task I told you about earlier the where you were classifying words as alive or not alive um, people who there's variation in how well people do that like how often they accidentally classify plants as uh, not alive well um, tasks like the cognitive reflection task can predict some of that variance so more reflective individuals are, are less likely to make mistakes that's pretty interesting I've always seen reflection as a somewhat of a superpower whether you do it on your own or you actually write things out of your thoughts or what you figured out because it makes it more concrete it's like you can get to next steps much quicker when you reflect on your own thoughts than if you just go with the flow of time but you're never looking at it in detail in a way mm -hmm. i mean another personality it's not really a personality trait but just a, a habit of mind that scientists have that others don't is um thinking about, first of all, uh, being able to fully differentiate theories and evidence and recognize that they exist on different planes um, and so that they constrain each other. Um, and also like recognizing what counts as evidence um, and, uh, and, and how you could have uh, different forms of evidence that might constrain the same. So just, uh, just a basic recognition of the epistemology of um of ideas and knowledge uh even if you're not trained in that like you can go to graduate school and learn cellular biology without anyone explicitly giving you instruction in the history of science or the philosophy of science but just by virtue of your education you will come away with a more nuanced understanding of theory and data um and that that understanding um helps you uh in your in your professional life and also informs the kinds of inferences you make um, you just reason about evidence in a better way even when it's not in your domain you know you take a cellular biologist and ask them to reason about say like a public policy issue they'll do a much better job of differentiating theory evidence what kind of evidence would we actually need to evaluate this position and so forth it transfers like that yeah. That's true. I always like to look at the smaller picture view versus larger picture. Let's say in the smaller picture, it might be understanding that class material for just uh, representing it or throwing it back. But then uh, having ability to think through things in detail applies everywhere, regardless of what the field is. Mm -hmm. And you're not limited in any capacity. So you might both get the same result on that material but one person may have just covered that material for that, and the other person 
may use their broader thinking for that, and then the next thing, and then maybe combining some different categories of material. Which actually, I want to throw that in there. What uh, are there any related fields that link with your material separate from what you research that you usually connect with? Uh, yeah, so my area is cognitive development, which is the intersection of cognitive psychology and developmental psychology. So the overarching field is psychology. Um, but then it, uh, I guess it sort of allies uh, uh, or aligns with philosophy. There are philosophical questions that come up in psychology, philosophy of mind. Um, it aligns with education. Uh, psychology also, or, or more specifically, like cognition aligns with artificial intelligence. I personally am not doing that kind of work, but there are a lot of people creating um, computational models of knowledge and concepts and inferences and so forth. Uh, yeah, those are, those would be the main overlaps. That's fair. I always like to check what links with what. Now, going back to intuition is not being correct. There is science that is well regarded and known to be accurate. And then there is science that is uh, potentially made up or not foolproof. And how does one use their intuition to avoid taking in those kinds of science? What would be the difference between that and science that is uh, peer reviewed or covered? Like, how do we differentiate science and pseudoscience mm -hmm. or uh, well-tested scientific ideas as opposed to fringe ideas? Um, yeah, this gets back to, um, more of these domain general habits of mind, like, um, being able to differentiate and also coordinate theory and evidence, um, being cognitively reflective, uh, um, just having good executive function skills ends up being helpful. So executive function is like usually thought of as a suite of skills, like, inhibition being able to inhibit responses rather than just going with your gut um, cognitive flexibility to be able to move between um, different ways of seeing a problem um, and uh, working memory just being able to hold a bunch of stuff in mind ideas in mind um, and so having more executive function tends to be better in terms of um, thinking through problems and solving various tasks uh, yeah, it's, it's hard though, when it comes to like specifically science versus pseudoscience, because even scientists will sometimes fall for pseudoscience, um, or, or sometimes their own research programs veer out into the fringes and they hold on to their cherished theories without recognizing that the bulk of evidence actually, uh, goes against their theories. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not like there's a, a silver bullet where if, if you just if you just have this um skill you'll be good at differentiating the two everyone is um vulnerable to accepting pseudoscience mm -hmm. earlier you had men mentioned epistemology and it reminded me of currently uh professor his uh, peter bogosian is doing street epistemology where he goes to schools and asks students questions and has them go to what they agree on and then uh, defend their viewpoint. How is that related to uh, scientific understanding so that the students can develop their own reasoning at that time? Mm -hmm. um, it, 
what the the activity you described reminded me of a framework uh, for analyzing critical thinking that's developed by Deanna Kuhn. She's a professor at uh, Columbia in the Teachers College. Um, she says that there's really two main components of critical thinking: inquiry, which is the heart of science, you know, acquiring data in order to test hypotheses. Um, but the other side is argumentation, um, being able to uh, argue with other people um, or even with yourself um, uh, about the um, the basis of different claims, knowledge claims. Um, you know, what what is the what evidence exists in favor of claims, um, what's whether it's some contradictory evidence, um, how, does, how do these claims align with what we know from other fields, um, all sorts of considerations that you need to juggle um, in your own thinking, but also in coordination with other people who might have different viewpoints. And it's usually other people arguing with other people, not in a, in a heated sense, but in like a dialectical sense that leads you to recognize gaps in your own understanding, gaps in your evidence base, because uh, we very easily overlook those gaps. <laughs> it's just us in our armchairs doing our own reasoning. But in conversation with someone else, that's when um, the, the, uh, the gaps and the inconsistencies and the errors, they all come to the surface, because we're very good at pointing them out in other people, even if we're not good at pointing, identifying them in ourselves. That's true. We will see things. It's almost also like the you will see the other person's actions and not look as much at their intent. And you will hope that they look at your intent and not always just your actions, but they're doing the same thing you do. So they maybe they're not looking at your intent, but they see your actions more so from their end. Yeah. In a way. I mean, good, healthy argumentation kind of avoids the, the intention question and assumes everyone's coming from a uh honest charitable place right um and that uh when you make mistakes it's it's not because you were trying to deceive someone else or yourself it's just we all make mistakes or we all are prone to make errors yeah that's true on online platforms where there are uh, people following many people of a similar form to themselves does that limit their ability to build intuition broadly because they're not getting the full range of opinions or views is there a limiting force there yeah probably um i mean the social media ends up being just a bunch of echo chambers where you're surrounded by people who have the same views so they're not going to point out inconsistencies in your arguments or your claims because they hold the same <laughs> arguments or, or support the same arguments and claims so right you need some amount of diversity in terms of viewpoints but not so much diversity as uh, that that you you're no longer on the same playing field when it comes to like epistemological ground rules right <laughs> you still need people to accept like basic tenets of logic and uh evidence <laughs> Actually, that concept there, having it within range, makes me think of, I was going to bring this up earlier for learning, do we do best if the what we're taking in is within a range from where we are? So if it's like too far ahead and we are not going to get anything from it, it's too distant uh, thought-wise, 
And then if it's way you know below our ability, obviously that won't be valuable. It has to be within a range of what we currently know. So it feels like we can pull towards it. Is there something to that? In, in terms of like learning that, that you, or is this, in what context are you talking about the range? Mm -hmm. Like uh, to, to do learning the, the range of what we are working towards is just a step or two above where we are or the person that's giving us instruction is sticking to just a step or two above where we are or else uh, if, if it's up here, we don't have some ability to take seven steps of learning immediately. And so we'll just not, right. not do it. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I found some evidence for that view in a study I did where we looked at the role of collaboration on learning evolution. So we put people together into uh, teams to um, work through a series of problems and tasks that were all related to evolution. And within the team, there's always someone who understood evolution more accurately in terms of selection than someone else who had an intuitive view that was, who's thought of evolution more as just metamorphosis. Um, so that's, that's the basic difference between like a correct and an incorrect view. And anyways, in, in any event, we would have these pairs and with one person having more uh, and a more accurate view than another. And we found that the pairs that did best together, the ones that exhibited higher scores relative to their performance on their own as individuals, those were um, pairs where the under the difference between them was, was moderate. If it was too big, they tended not to work well together. Um, and it's possible that what was going on in, in the pairs with the big gaps is that they, they just couldn't communicate because they would talk past each other. And when you looked at the transcripts of them actually talking to each other, one person would say something and the other person would respond and they the responses didn't actually align <laughs> with the original statement. So, so they would come to agreements, but it wasn't all clear that they really did agree because just looking at the content of what they were saying, they were... They were using the same words, but in very different ways, like how a physicist uses the word force as opposed to a child uses the word force. Same thing might happen in, in other domains. Mm -hmm. That's very informative. I take a lot from that description you brought right there. Now, before I actually include a little bit on your upcoming material, which is interesting, who are some individuals who have guided you in the category of intuition or who have been uh, key figures as you've studied it? So my graduate advisor, Susan Carey, is a key inspiration. I mean, she's a leading figure in the field of conceptual development, um, trying to show that knowledge is structured in a way that's similar to a scientific theory. Um, but at the same time, the content is qualitatively different. So that's that's how you get this term intuitive theory. The theory pays homage to the similarity between naive knowledge and scientific knowledge, but the intuitive makes it clear that we're not talking about like an impoverished version of a scientific theory. We're talking about something very different. Um, and intuitive theories go by different names. I, I like the word that that phrase intuitive theory because of the, the connotations it, it has and doesn't have, but they, it also goes by the name naive theory, lay theory, um, uh, wait, there's another common one that I'm 
forgetting. Anyways, there you you could call it uh, a bunch of different things, but anyways, this perspective was one of the pioneers was Susan Carey, um, and then other people working, you know, at the same time to sort of uh, solidify and clarify this view. So like Susan Gelman at the University of Michigan, Frank Kyle at Yale. Um, Mickey Chi at Arizona State, Stella Vosniadu, um, who was in Greece and is now in Australia at Flinders University. Um, there's kind of a different uh, leading expert in different areas uh, of uh, different domains of knowledge. You know, so there's people who have worked on, say, intuitive theories of matter and have really um, clarified our understanding of what the naive view is relative to the scientific view. So a person who's done a lot of work in that particular area is Carol Smith at the University of Massachusetts. Or when it comes to understanding naive views of motion, um, that's a whole other group of people like John Clement, um, uh, McCloskey, I'm blanking on his first name. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's some people who've taken sort of a bird's eye view and tried to describe intuitive theories globally, what they're like across domains. But then there's another cast of characters who have done very careful, detailed, domain-specific work characterizing uh, particular intuitive theories. And so I hope that comes across in the book, <laughs> that I point out the right people. Um, Alison Gopnik is another person who's done a lot of important work establishing what intuitive theories are and how they help us learn. She's at uh, UC Berkeley. I think her I've seen somewhere. Hers is the only one I recognize, but I think yeah, I've she's seen a somewhere. she's also uh, uh, more of a, a public intellectual. She tries to engage with the general public. Uh, published some uh, uh, best-selling books. Actually, on that point, I think about that sometimes. Is there, let's say, there are many researchers, and there's only let's say a few that would reach out and make something of a popular uh, note. Are they like the spokes individuals for the others, or would you say they are different in a way from the others? <laughs> well, there's a certain like set of personality traits that probably goes along with the the academics who want to engage with the general public and others who are happier doing their own research in their own lab. Mm -hmm. um, and I, some people have this view like we should all do outreach activities that should just be part of our job. And I'm sympathetic to that view. But at the same time, I realize that it's a it's a different set of skills and it takes time to develop those skills. And um, uh, yeah, and, and if you don't enjoy doing it then and you do enjoy doing research, then I think that's probably just as valuable to the community as a whole than if you try to diversify and did a not so great job of your outreach activities. Um, but I mean, that being said, when you only have some people uh, serving the role of um, connecting with the general public, um, sometimes their own idiosyncratic views uh, end up being represented <laughs> as like the, the field's consensus, which is not always the case. Right. I think some people might argue that in science blind, you know, some of my claims about intuitive theories um, are not necessarily consensus view. Um, there is a group of people, especially within um, coming from the education research world, like within educa schools of education, who think that 
intuitive theories are, is not the right description of naive knowledge, at least not in certain domains. And that knowledge in those domains is more fragmented. It's not so coherent. It's much more based on specific concrete experiences as opposed to sort of a, a, a general structure, um, what we would call ontological commitments or just commitments about the, the types of things that exist and the types of properties those things have. Like the, these are some sort of theoretical commitments that psychologists have that a lot of education researchers don't have. So, right, there's going to be uh, tension uh, if you if you try to communicate one view to the public, you inevitably will downplay the other views. <laughs> it's almost like when you have a, a broad view of a category that you are, uh, have mastered and researched, and then others would like some takeaway points to use for their field. And they're not looking into it as uh, detailed or long form as you might be for your field. Yeah. And uh, some people who uh, at the same time that they're trying to disseminate science to a general audience also try to involve the general public in the debates um, and give them an appreciation of the nuances of the research and the outstanding questions and outstanding uh, debates. But sometimes that can just be more confusing than helpful. <laughs> so it's, you have to strike a balance. <laughs> right. Balance is key in some ways. Speaking of balance, as you switch your balance from uh, intuition to imagination, even though that's upcoming material, how would you describe the transition from one to the other? What would you say has led from one to the other as far as what you are expressing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the work on imagination arose from a, just an entirely different set of studies where I was looking at um, children's strategies for deciding whether or not something is possible, an event that they have not personally experienced um, and also defies their expectations. Um, can they still recognize that it might be possible? So to, to be more specific, um, could you find an alligator under your bed? Um, adults tend to say yes. It might take them a little while to agree, but it is within the realm of possibilities for an adult because alligators are real animals. Beds are real things. There's enough room typically for an alligator to fit under a bed. It, um, even though it's not clear how that could happen, adults agree that it could. Um, Four-year-olds, though, are almost uniform in denying that it's possible. It's not just that they, th they think it's unlikely. They think it could never happen under any circumstances. And it's very hard to convince them that it could. Not that you necessarily want to convince them there's an alligator <laughs> under their bed. That, <laughs> but for a whole range of improbable events, um, they have trouble uh, identifying circumstances that might allow those events to occur or conversely recognizing that there's no physical laws that would preclude those events from occurring. So that was the range of studies that got me thinking about imagination. And as I sort of broadened the scope, um, I realized that uh, children's imaginations have been oversold. Um, we have this uh, naive view of children as being the most imaginative creatures on the planet and that we lose our imaginations as we age and as we become, um, with schooling and job training, our thoughts become very regimented, our behaviors become very routine. 
uh, that's the view. But it turns out that there's really not much evidence to support that view, um, that on pretty much any task, adults outperform children. <laughs> um, children are not great at generating novel possibilities. Um, they're not particularly inventive. Um, they're not even particularly creative. Uh, somehow we've, we've decided as a society that's true, but the, the literature, the research literature doesn't support that view. So that's, that's what the book is about. It's sort of twofold. It's trying to dispel the myth that imagination is something that we're born with, that we can potentially lose. Um, rather, it's the other way around. Um, imagination only develops and improves with age, experience, education. The other thing that I try to do in this book is to show how, how intricately linked imagination is to knowledge that um, imagination is an extension of what we already know. Um, and there's this uh, other correlated misconception that when you come to learn something, it constrains your imagination because you can only think about what you know now. And it would be better to be ignorant, to just approach the problem with no knowledge at all. But when you do that, then you're just flailing and floundering and, and you get cases of like novices passing themselves off as experts when in fact they they just have nowhere they, they have no idea where even to start so knowledge is always helpful it is constraining there's definitely evidence that when you know something you tend to think in the terms of the knowledge but then the solution is just to learn more just acquire more knowledge and that broadens your perspective as opposed to trying to uh regain a state of ignorance or approach the problem without using your knowledge in some way I like two points you brought up there. One, the topic for the material you're written about is very accurate that there's that idea that children have way more, but then now they actually think about it. It's not really the case. And all the that's funny. It's like a counterintuitive one in a way. And then on the second <laughs> one that you mentioned there is it related with something I recently spoke to someone about uh, free markets and how individuals countering uh, governments will say, oh, less of this and less of that and less of that. But you need to come from a base of something and then work from there. So same thing with knowledge limiting. No, it's the you need to come from a base of knowledge and then work from there versus the idea that you would remove such a thing and then somehow spontaneously items would emanate. It's not really the way things function. Yeah. Huh. It's like a, I don't know where that idea comes from, but that's a common theme that it's the other way around, that from nothingness... It will just originate, and then having too much figured out will be limiting, but I've seen the opposite. Hmm. What would you say? I would like to check this. Obviously, this was from prior, but one message you would want individuals to take from either science blind or about the field of intuition that might uh, give them understanding for their day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well... Uh, never stop learning science. Uh, I think uh, th there needs to be, a, I think, a, a wider recognition and appreciation that science is hard. <laughs> um, it is conceptually hard. Uh, the, the science, modern science, is built on a set of concepts that does not align with the concepts that emerge early in life. And so um, uh, it you won't learn science in passing. Like you can be a very well, uh, you can be very well informed about political events and um, current trends and entertainment and even like um, 
later in life learn history on your own, but it's hard to learn science on your own, right? You have to, it actually takes work to learn the science that you never mastered when you were in school and sort of you were being forced to learn it. Um, and at the same time, even for the science that you have learned, uh, we need to recognize that our default is not the scientific theory, it's the intuitive theory that preceded the scientific theory. So when you, um, you know, have a particular attitude towards COVID-19 or a particular attitude or a behavior related to climate change. And you think this must be right because I'm a smart person and I'm a scientifically literate person. Chances are actually those beliefs, those attitudes, those behaviors, they're actually grounded in your intuitive understanding as opposed to your scientific understanding. So you just have to always be taking your own knowledge with a grain of salt, um, either because you haven't learned the relevant science or because you did learn it, but it's so easy to um, to be uh, to default to intuitive theories instead of the, the, the science that we should be using. Just being humble about your scientific knowledge, I guess. <laughs> hum right. Having humility. <laughs> humility is key. There's something human about having humility. Mm -hmm. This is wonderful. Uh, it would be great to speak about imagination in the future for today. Where can people find your material or work or online? Uh, yeah, if you um, either type my name into Google or type Occidental Thinking Lab, um, you'll find a web page that has all my research posted on there. And the book about imagination is slated to come out in the fall of 2023. So it'll be a while. But it's it's finished. It's just now it has to go through like all that copy editing and revising and so forth. I want to throw actually one in there, one little closer book coming up with the whole book. Is it hefty? Is it hefty to get all the way to creating a book? Does it look like a large item beforehand? <laughs> That'll be my last one. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a it's quite an undertaking. Um, I wrote Science Blind after having taught a course that was the foundation for the book um, where uh, any given chapter corresponds to maybe like two or three lectures. So I thought it would be, it should be relatively easy because I've already created these lectures, but no, it was still hard. <laughs> right then. I mean, it, it's like, a, a, you know, a, a years long process. Um, but it's really, it can be really rewarding because um, when you are trying to synthesize material from lots of different um, isolated literatures, little pockets of research, you discover all these um, interesting similarities and commonalities um, and sometimes contradictions. But more often than not, I've been amazed about how consistent the literature happens to be across different uh um, research paradigms and research traditions. Um, lots of people reinventing the wheel they, because they don't talk to themselves. Someone who's studying physics education is not usually going to talk to someone studying children's understanding of life and death, yet they are both simultaneously discovering similar kinds of constraints on learning and similar kinds of experiences that give rise to learning and so forth. That's one of the cool features of going into a category. You start to see all the links and then there are truths that you figure out that's mm -hmm. wonderful on this one here andrew i would like to thank you for having joined for this discussion and sharing quite a bit 
about intuition, also science blind, your upcoming material, and also the thinking lab. Thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> Super glad to be here.